It is our privilege to bring to you the following message, supported by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our normal Sunday morning service times. Pastor Rick Foster is serving as our interim senior pastor here at Rancho Baptist Church. Well, today Pastor Rick continues in his series in Ruth. He's in chapter 1 looking at verses 1 through 22 in a sermon he's entitled, When God Reels Us In. Here's Pastor Rick. If we looked at a timeline of the Old Testament, we would find the book of Ruth happening during the time of Judges, before 1 Samuel, but after Joshua. In Judah, there is a town named Bethlehem, and in that town, there is a man named Elimelech who is married to a woman named Naomi. They had two sons named Malan and Kilian. In those days, there is a famine in Bethlehem, and they decide to travel to the country of Moab to sojourn there which means they didn't intend to stay permanently. While in Moab, Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi with the two sons. These two sons married women from Moab. Kilian married a woman named Orpah, and Malin married a woman named Ruth. After ten years of living in Moab, Malin and Kilian die, thus leaving Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth widowed. Naomi is now in a foreign land without her husband and without her sons. Naomi hears that the famine in Bethlehem is over and desires to return home. She turns to her two daughters-in-law and tells them to return to their families. But Ruth and Orpah refuse, saying they will go with Naomi. This is how Naomi responds. Why would you? I don't have new sons to give you for husbands, and I'm too old to get a husband to have more sons for you. But even if I did, would you wait for them, refrain from marriage, until they were old enough? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Together they wept. Orpah kissed Naomi goodbye and went home. But Ruth stayed. Naomi argues, but Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. They then traveled to Bethlehem together. When they had returned, the town was stirred up because of them, asking if this was really Naomi. Her response is, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So they had returned to Bethlehem, Ruth, with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Hope you have your Bibles with you. Uh, If you didn't bring one this morning or you're not used to bringing a Bible to church on Sunday, fine. But we have them in the pockets in the chair in front of you. Grab it. Uh, If you're not very familiar with your Bible, fine. A lot of people of us aren't. Open to the front end where there's a table of contents and let's all turn to the book of Ruth. You'll find Ruth listed under the Old Testament books. And this morning we are going to dig in in our series uh, and look at Ruth chapter 1. James Sizu made a very astute observation 
that I'd like to quote from. He said, let it never be forgotten that glamour is not greatness. That applause is not fame. That prominence is not eminence. And that the man of the hour is not apt to be the man of the ages. A stone may sparkle, but that does not make it a diamond. People may have money, but that does not make them a success. It is what the unimportant people do that really counts and determines the course of history. In fact, the greatest forces in the universe are typically not spectacular. For example, summer showers are more effective than hurricanes, but they get no publicity. The world would soon die, but for the fidelity, loyalty, and consecration of those whose names are unhonored and unsung. You know, for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, no matter how common, ordinary, or plain our daily routines appear to be, Something powerful and immensely important is unfolding around us, even if our eyes cannot see it or we can explain it. See, our lives matter. Every one of our lives matter. And the choices that we make, even while we're living out this ordinary, plain, uneventful life, at least it seems to us, those choices are reverberating in the kingdom of God. And we never would have known how ordinary plain people have affected history if it wasn't for this story written by an unknown author that we're going to be looking at here over the next few weeks called the Book of Ruth. Because it is a story about loyalty. It is a story about faith, but not of celebrities. The great thing about it, this is about common people. And it's an example to us, an encouraging example, about how God often chooses to remain back in the shadows And yet, his astonishing plans so often move through, again, the events of our ordinary, plain lives. Now, to appreciate, though, this story, we need to understand the the, the times in which it was set. And that's why we spent last Sunday just looking at those first seven words of Ruth. And so if you have your Bibles there, you'll notice, again, what were they in the days when the judges ruled. And so we made the observation that the book of Ruth really is set back in the book prior to it, the book of Judges. And that was a time when there was war. I mean, there was chaos. Now, the book of Ruth, as many of you who know your Old Testament history well, was preceded by the book of Joshua. Great victories in battle. But you know what? They've long been forgotten. A generation has grown up, and they could care less what God has done. And so now you've got years in the book of Judges described about spiritual decline, anarchy. Oh yeah, there was revivals. We read that in the book of Judges, but they were brief. And then typically, moral chaos came right after it. If you could pick one word to describe the moral tone of our day, I'm not sure what word you would pick, but my word is, whatever. How is the moral tone of This day described. We'll turn back one page. We looked at it last week. The very last sentence of the very last chapter of Judges. Here's the moral tone that Ruth, the story of Ruth is set in. In those days, there was no king in Israel. 
and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. So here we are looking at a generation that is marked by an incredibly high degree of permissiveness. People just did whatever they wanted to do. Which leads us now to the opening chapter of the story. And notice as we look in these opening verses, a crisis unfolds quickly as we're told how disaster strikes. Look at verse 1, verse 2. We see the choices that have been made that led up to this tragedy. So there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. Famine. Lousy harvests have created a hard time to find food. So people were struggling to get enough to eat because of the poor rains. And if you read the book of Judges or have read it recently, you know it's also because wars kept ravaging the land from one end to the other. The other word to notice here is sojourn. In verse 1, we're told that Elimelech's decision to take his family to Moab was intended to be a temporary move. They were just going to go for a while. The problem with that is that all across the Old Testament, God expressed over and over again to his people, stay in the land and don't leave it. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 16, Moses writes and says, For I command you today to love the Lord your God. Walk in his ways. Keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. Add to that Psalm 37 and verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. By the way, that last little phrase, enjoy safe pasture, is often translated, feed on his faithfulness, meaning God's faithfulness. So, The children of Israel were told, stay in the land and God will bless. God will be faithful to you there. Yet, what do we read? The family left the land of Israel and the place of God's blessing because it wasn't convenient at the moment. Note that carefully. It wasn't impossible to live in Bethlehem. It just was difficult. Elimelech, he's a man of his times. What is he doing? He's doing exactly what we read at the end of the book of Judges. He's just doing what's right in his own eyes. Well, watch the heartbreak that now follows. Follow along. Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years, and both Malin and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Wow. You can't read those verses without feeling the deep sense of tragedy that has just hit this family. So first, Naomi becomes a widow, and we're not told how long after going to Moab that occurred, but it did. And then as soon as the dad dies, the the sons then soon afterwards, marry Moabite women. Then we are given a little bit of a time frame where 
they live there for 10 years, no kids, and then Naomi loses both of her sons. All of the men in the family are dead. Do you see the dramatic irony that's occurred here? The family has fled to Moab to survive, and now they're on the brink of extinction. And look at the end of verse 5. The Hebrew text paints it very vividly, probably a little bit better than the English translation you have in front of you, because literally it reads, Naomi was left in separation from, far from, her two sons and her husband. The heartbreak of this is deep and wrenching. So disaster has struck this family. And it is indeed heartbreaking to read. And now what we see now is a series of decisions that start being made. And it begins with Naomi making a decision. Look at verse 6. So then she, Naomi, arose with her daughter-in-laws to return to the country of Moab, For she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Again, remember, there was a famine. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Again, just remember, Naomi is in a foreign country. They left home to make a better living, and now all the men that can provide for that better living are gone. So they came to Moab looking for security and all that's been stripped away. So when the grapevine of that day reports that the famine in Israel is over, um, Naomi sees this as God providing for his people. So why stay here? It's, It's time to return home. And once Naomi makes her choices, then it's time for each of the daughter-in-laws to make their choices. And first we have Orpah's decision. So what did Orpi do? Well, look at verse 8. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house, and may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. But they said to her, No, we'll return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Okay, stop right there for a moment. Why does she talk about the the potential of her having more kids? Because in Israel at that time, it was so important to protect the family line that there was a very unusual duty laid upon a younger brother whose older brother had died and left a widow. He was obligated, when he got old enough, to marry her and raise up family through her. So Naomi is simply presenting the harsh facts. All of my sons are gone. And so even if I could marry and instantly become pregnant and then after nine months have a, ba- a son quickly, would you wait, what, 18 years before he would marry one of you? So Naomi is seeing no future for them to come with her. As Moabite women, they would have a greater chance of remarrying by staying in their own country. Now Orpha recognizes the truth of all this. 
She understands what Naomi has said. So you notice in verse 14, she kisses her mother-in-law goodbye, and she goes back to her home and her family. Now we look at Naomi's decision. Look at verse 16. What's the first word? All the translations have it. What's that first word? But. Okay, so but alerts us that we're going to have an amazing surprise here. In contrast to what Orpah did, Naomi's headed off in a different direction. Notice, Ruth refuses to leave Naomi's side. Look at verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. And then well-known words, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge, and your people shall be my people, and your God, my God, and where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Notice, Ruth chooses to remain faithful And these words are expressing this incredibly deep relational commitment that she has to her mother-in-law. Now, that decision should be incredibly surprising for all of us, considering the circumstances. Ruth has seen the way that the God of Israel has treated this family. Again, go back to how Naomi described it in verse 13. His hand has been against us. Yet in spite of that, Ruth has seen, and we're not told what it is, but she has seen something very authentic, very real about the God of Israel, and she wants in. Now, she may not be fully informed, but she chooses to seek the Lord in coming with Naomi. So, what do the two of them do? They make the 70-mile hike from Moab down into the, the Jordan Rift Valley, back up the other side, and specifically they come back to Bethlehem. Now understand something. Bethlehem in that day was a very plain, ordinary town filled with very plain, ordinary people located at the end of the road. So for Naomi to show up after disaster has struck, even after the decisions have been made, they come home and it set the town astir. But watch now as discouragement is expressed. You know, in a small town like that, you can imagine that the daily newspaper had a difficult time finding anything to print as headlines, you know, other than the, the next goat calling contest and stuff like that. So for Naomi to return, hey, this is big news. Let's, let's, let's talk about this. And that's exactly what happened. The women want to know, wow, is it really you, Naomi? We, you know, you've been gone a long time. And notice her grief is expressed by a play on words where, first of all, her discouragement is seen because she wants a name change. Look at verse 20. The women say, verse 19, is this you, Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. And you probably know, you've probably studied Ruth before, that, the, that in the Hebrew language, the name Naomi means pleasant, and the name Mara means bitter. In other words, what Naomi is trying to communicate here is, my life has been anything but pleasant over the past years. It has been full of bitter events. You might as well call me Mara. See, Naomi at this point is flirting with resentment as she's tempted to let her circumstances define her. Now, there's another way in which her discouragement is being expressed here. 
Notice how she describes her change of fortune. Not only does she want a name change, but notice how she says, my circumstances have changed for me. Look at verse 21. I went away full. Now stop for a quick second, a little sidebar here. Did she go away full? No. What did she go away in? A famine. It was very difficult to find food to feed the family. It's amazing, isn't it, how we all kind of rewrite history when we get into a different perspective? We look back on times that were really tough and we go, oh, those were great times. Okay, this, is, this, is, this is Naomi. So she says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. By the way, how do you think that made Ruth feel standing next to her? I'm empty. Well, what am I, chopped liver? I mean, what a commitment Ruth has made to her. Again, but you understand, see the discouragement going on inside of Naomi. I left full. God's brought me back empty. Ten years ago, she thought she was in a position of prosperity. And and maybe in some ways it is. She had her sons. She had her husband. We can tackle anything with that. But now she sees herself as an indigent. I'm alone. By the way, so let's pile together all of her words that she's been using here. Verse 13, his hand has been against me. Verse 20, he has made my life bitter. Verse 21, he brought me back empty. He has afflicted and testified against me. He has made my life a disaster. And folks, here at the lowest point of the story, we can see the central point of the story. Because notice that verse 22 begins with the word... So, here's the summary statement. So, Naomi returned. She is finally in the right place. Even though everything doesn't appear to be going right, she's in the right place. And what happened to Naomi and the choices she made back then are given to us as a powerful truth for where we're living today. And the simple truth is this. When we've wandered away, the right move is to return. Folks, that's the simple but powerful truth of chapter 1 for us. And the whole drama of chapter 1 revolves around one key word. Maybe you've picked up on it already. It's the word return. Over 20 times. It pops up here in this chapter and that word return highlights both a biblical fact and an experiential fact that the people of God will wander away. And wandering can be physical. I mean, I'm not where I should be. That's really what what Naomi uh, was experiencing. But it can also be other things. It can be a compromise of values. It can be a moral choice that we make. It can be letting our spiritual passion grow cold. It can be letting convenience replace living by conviction and faith take over. Wandering. And the critical point that this chapter is bringing up to us is when we realize we've wandered, what do we do then? In our stubbornness, do we ignore it? In our shame, do we hide it? In our pride, do we try to justify it? Or do we turn around and head back home? Is there a returning to the Lord? (laughs) See, the first chapter of this remarkable little book gives amazing insight into the reality of wandering and returning. 
And what's going on inside of us during those wandering times? And what is God doing as a result of my choices? And so how do I respond to God when I recognize I've wandered and I need to return? Folks, those are great questions. Those are the kinds of things that are going to pop right out of the text. And what they all do, those questions, is point to the very impact of this passage for us. Because the truth that when we've wandered, the right, the right move is to return, is supported by three very powerful implications. And these implications are like foundation stones that we need to lay at the very bottom of our lives that, that we live from and out of. And by the way, we need all three of them, not just one or two. We need all three to be powerfully alive inside of us. So let me give you three to, to kind of mull over and think about. And the first implication is this that it is possible to stay faithful to God even when it appears he has not been fair. Did you notice that Naomi and Ruth had every reason not to return? I mean, God's been heavy-handed. He's made life bitter. She feels, Naomi feels empty. She feels beat up. If that had been us, what would be our reaction? Wouldn't we begin to think and maybe talk to God and say something like, okay, God, I admit that we should never have rented that U-Haul and moved, but was that any reason to take away my husband and my sons? Isn't that being a little extreme and heavy-handed? Oh, I admit I disobeyed a little, but I didn't disobey a lot. So you can't read chapter 1 without asking the question, why? And we can't live life without asking the question, why? Why did these men have to die? It just doesn't seem fair. I mean, the cause-effect ratio here just seems all out of whack to what I would think it ought to be. And Naomi not only recognizes God's hand in all of this, she also chooses to remain faithful even when God doesn't appear to be fair. She rightly holds God responsible for all that happened, but in doing so, she is not losing faith. Rather, she is expressing a bold, audacious, and authentic faith here. Which means, for me, for us, when it feels like God has not been fair, when it looks like He's been heavy-handed on our lives... Don't reject him. Lean into him. Rely on him. We may never have a question, an answer to our question, why? I don't know about you, i got a whole sack of whys. I don't have answers to yet. Maybe one day I will. Maybe one day when I see him, he'll be gracious enough to let me see it. But right now, I don't. But we can remain faithful to God. How? The first step is to come home. Like the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15, head back towards the father. And the reality of that immediately transitions us to the second very practical foundation stone that we need to lay in our lives. Not just that it's possible to stay faithful to God, even when it appears he's not been fair to me, but the second one is my view of God's heart determines my response to hard times. 
Now, I want you to watch something very powerful here. It's very quiet, and you can overlook it easily. But notice how Naomi refers to God using two different names for him. Sometimes here in chapter 1, she uses the title Almighty, which is the Hebrew name Shaddai. You've probably heard that name before. Shaddai means the all-powerful, sovereign one. In other words, nobody can resist him. He just does what he wants with power. Shaddai. But other times, she uses the title Lord, which is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is describing he is personally involved and engaged in my life. She uses both of those names. See, Naomi, this widow flirting with bitterness, is an incredibly good theologian. She knows her God well. He's powerful. Nothing can stop him. He's got everything under control. And yet he's also personally involved in the details of her life. And he is aware of her pain. He is both of those at the same time. And that's why Naomi can complain about how God has treated her and yet not reject him, not keep him out there, away from her. Again, look at the end of how verse 13, she describes things. It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And yet, look what this same woman just minutes before said up at the end of verse 8 into verse 9. Oh, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And may the Lord grant that you find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. She's not schizophrenic here. She's not flip-flopping. But she is holding two things at the same time in her hands. God can make life hard and God can make life good. And that's why Naomi can describe her life as bitter, as we saw in verse 20, and yet not become a bitter woman. Most of us probably would never have returned, would we? I'm not sure I would have. We would be so angry, so resentful against God, and not seek His kindness to help us deal with our pain and our grief. Life gets tough. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when for all of us. And it's our view of God's heart, like Naomi's view of God's heart, Shaddai and Yahweh at the same time, that will determine our response to hard times. And when we know Him well, even though we don't understand, we'll still lean into Him because we trust His heart. It's possible to stay faithful to God even when it doesn't appear He's been fair. Second, my view of God determines my response to hard times. Let me give you a third one to chew on, the third foundation stone to lay in in each of our lives, and that is, if necessary, God will empty us in order to see us return to Him. If you don't hear anything else this morning, if you don't leave with anything else in your mind from Ruth chapter 1, please leave with this. And that is, God loves wandering people. He loves them. 
And he loves us so much that he will do whatever is necessary to get us to recognize that we are wandering and to reveal our need to return to him. Many times we pull an Elimelech move. Boy, that's a tongue twister. We pull an Elimelech move in that we pursue convenience or prosperity and that leads us to wandering away. And you know what our God does? He has no problem moving in and in ways eliminating all those idols that we are chasing or filling in with dirt those empty cisterns that we're trying to drink from in order to reel us back in. There is nothing more important. Some of you this morning need to hear this from me. There is nothing more important than returning and enjoying an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. He wants our full focus. He wants our full attention. He wants our complete love. And that may mean bringing us all the way down to empty in order to help us recognize our need of returning to Him. Now, I fully admit, Ruth chapter 1 does not address in an exhaustive way the problem of of the pain that's in our lives. But it does give tremendous insight into one aspect of it. Now, remember what James Sisu said that I quoted at the front end. It's what the unimportant people do that really counts and determines the course of history. So the first step for wanderers is to turn around and head home to our God who out of his love will treat us with mercy. Does anyone here this morning need to take that first step? Join me. Let's pray about that right now. Father, I haven't been around here much. You know that. Or not very long anyway. And yet already I I have heard and have been told by my brothers and sisters, some of whom are in this very room, of how hard life has been recently for them. And my heart goes out. But there are so many more stories in this room than the ones that I have heard. And some of them would be stories of wanderers. Men and women, teenagers, boys and girls in this very room right now who have gone astray, made choices, and it's gotten hard. Father, this morning I just thank you that Ruth chapter 1 reminds us that you love wanderers. You're not disgusted with us. You're not put out by us. You're reaching out to us to come on home. Father, earlier we sang the words of that song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for your courts above. And Father, that might be the prayer of many of us this morning who recognize our wandering condition and need to cry out to you to come take our heart. May this morning we recognize we've got the loving 
arms of a father waiting for us. But will we take that first step of once again saying, Lord Jesus, I want you to have all of me. To once again enjoy the power of the gospel flowing in our lives. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you love us dearly. Thank you that you are waiting for us. In Jesus' wonderful, gracious name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.